Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a successful business, I've met, directly or indirectly, many successful people from entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes someone successful? Do we even know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create it for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. Today's podcast guest is Baroness Tani Gray-Thompson. Tani is a former wheelchair racer and one of the most successful disabled athletes in the UK. Having competed at five Paralympic Games between 1988 and 2004, Tani's won 16 Paralympic medals, 11 gold to go with her 13 World Championship medals, of which six were gold. She's also held over 30 world records and won the London Marathon six times. Since racing, Tani has been in the public eye as a television presenter, a university chancellor and a politician, amongst many other things. Tani sits on boards as varied as that of the London Marathon and the BBC and is patron of numerous charities. And with a distinguished parliamentary career, and was conferred as Baroness in 2010. So, unsurprisingly, it gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome our guest, Tani Gray-Thompson. Hi, Tani. Hello. How are you? All good? I'm really good, thank you. Good. So, straight into it, we have uh, about half an hour. Thank you so much for being a guest. Um, I've been looking forward to this immensely. So, let's start with a very simple one. Tell us about Tani Gray-Thompson. Tell us about uh, your background, maybe something about you we might not know. Okay, so um, I was born with a condition called spina bifida. It was kind of very mild. Uh, I basically just had a little lump on my back that was the size of an egg. So um, my, I don't think my parents had even heard of spina bifida when I was born. I was in an incubator for a couple of days, and then I kind of went home. And apparently the only question my mum asked when they said, you know, is there anything you want to know, was, can she have children? Like, what a bizarre... That was it, nothing else about <laughs> the impairment. Um, and then I sort of developed... Um, you know, relatively sort of uh, normally, whatever that is. So I, I started being able to crawl, but um, it was apparent really early on that my legs just weren't developing and weren't growing and there was no strength there. Um, so I, I started uh, being able to walk a little bit, but basically fell over a lot. And then, uh, I don't know whether it's an unfortunate chance or not, but um, as I grew, my spine collapsed and it was actually... Um, the bones of my spinal cord actually severed my spine, um, where the, the, the cord was exposed. So um, I started wearing calipers, and that was just rubbish because I couldn't do anything. And then it was actually my dad who fought to get me a wheelchair, because he recognised he was an architect, so he knew how inaccessible the world was, because he helped build it. And um, <laughs> you know everything he built at that point apparently had steps and cobbles, which is just great. Um, so he, he realised it was about being independent. It wasn't about walking, because walking's... You know, walking just gets you places. You know, it, it, it was much more about how I could go to school on my own, go round school on my own. When I was walking with calipers, um, I could walk about 20 metres, you know, and then I'd you know, just be exhausted. So there were lots of people who told my parents I shouldn't have a chair because, you know, it'd be letting me down and, you know, I'd never do anything with my life. And, and he just fought back on that. So in the early years, it, playing sport, it wasn't about a pathway because... Nobody knew what the Paralympic pathway was. It was about being fit and strong. And if I needed to get out of my chair and crawl up a flight of stairs, I could do that. Um, and then it was only later, you know, when I was 12, 13, that sport 
in competitive sport kicked in and, and really you know I joke but from the age of 12 every decision I made was about doing wheelchair racing um you know I went to Loughborough University because of sporting reputation um you know it, it it was the most important thing in my life and I was really lucky my parents kind of just tolerated me me doing this thing but the one thing my parents were really keen on was education and you know dad was well you can go mess around and do this wheelchair racing lark but you need to get a university degree and you need to you know, you always have to have something to fall back on. And, and bizarrely, that's what I say to the young kids in sport now. I've actually just turned into my dad. So, um, yeah, it, it, it was just my, my dream come true to get to do something that I love doing so much. One thing I, that I find very fascinating, and, and we'll talk about this in a second, but I, if you don't mind me saying this, the one thing I've always really admired about you is you're such a normal person. And the word normal, you know, I don't want anyone to take out of context. Um, but you strike everyone that you meet as just being very, very down-to-earth, very humble, um, and as I say, just a very, very normal person. Um, you talk about having something to fall back on. Does that not take away some of the drive and kind of ambition? Because clearly you have to be very focused to be a world champion at, at your sport. Mm -hmm. So um, if you could just help us to understand... Is there a lack of focus by having something to fall back on? Is it about sheer determination and tunnel vision, or is it about being sensible and recognising that um, you know, it is a competitive world? My, my parents never let me define myself pure, purely as an athlete, and that was really important uh, as, a, as a young athlete to, to understand that you're a bit like a Venn diagram. So the bit that other people see might be the athletic performance, but... You know, now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all these different things. And, and it's not getting caught up. So, no, I mean, the drive for me to be an athlete was really important, you know, and lots of things fell by the wayside because of, of wanting to do that. But, but also, I think, recognising at the time that I was a Paralympian, there was no money in Paralympic sport. You know, um, you know road racing in the UK where, you know, there are races with really decent prize money for runners, I'd win some gift vouchers, um, you know, and that doesn't put petrol in your car. Um, so it's it, it was about having other skills as well. And actually, if you're going to be an athlete, you need to... Because unless you're earning lots of money, you know, you, you can't afford the lawyers to read your contracts, you know, the, if you're sponsored. So, you know, to, to understand what you're signing um, and things like that. And, and it was also, you know, there's only a limit to how much you can train a day. I mean, in working life, you can work 20 hours a day. Mm. In sport, you can't train, you know, 20 hours a day. So I remember I'd, I'd been away to Australia for three and a half months training. And I remember coming home and the first thing I did, went to my parents' house, family meal. And I'm just raving about this amazing time I'd had in Australia. And after about 10 minutes, my dad said, right, you trained a lot. And the weather was lovely, and you did some other stuff, but was that it? I was like, yeah. And he went, right, okay. Sean, what did you do today? That's my sister. And, and, and that kind of levelling was really important because it's dead easy to get caught up in, oh, you're the athlete, aren't you? And, and most of the time it's lovely, but, but you're so many other things. And, and I think that helped me with my transition as well mm. because, you know, when you stop, you, you know, I retired really late as an athlete. I retired at 37. So... Um, you know, you have to find other things that fill the rest of your life. And for me, it was building all those skills. And I, I kind of saw it as a jigsaw. The sport was the, the, the main focus of it, but there's all these other bits around the outside that you need to build. Because also, you know, I kind of recognised when I retired that I was going to have to get a real job. Um, and 
you know, going to an employer and saying, well, I travelled the world for 20 years and had a lovely time, you know, you, you need to be much smarter in how you express those transferable skills. And, you know, my dad would always argue that her slots wasn't a real job anyway, so thanks, Dad. <laughs> but um, it, it, was, it was having all those building blocks because actually I could have got injured. My performance director could have said, right, you're done. You know, I was lucky I chose my retirement. Most people don't do that. So for me, it was having something that almost immediately stepped in to, to fill that void of training and compete. And it is, you know, it's lovely competing in front of 100,000 people. It's really cool. Mm. But but that's that doesn't happen for the rest of your life. So you need something that steps in and replaces that. I love the fact, by the way, you've you've referenced Venn diagrams. I'm not even going to begin to try and describe what one of those is, but um, <laughs> clearly you're older than you look. <laughs> Thank um, you. So you, you talk about the age of 12, you made a decision to, to effectively aspire to become a world-class athlete. Um, Tell us about the daily routines that you had to go through, because obviously a decision is one thing. Some kind of positive action to take you to wherever you want to get to is another thing altogether. So what did Tanny Gray-Thompson do every day to uh, transition from that decision when she was 12 to all the things that you became subsequently? So the training sort of built up over a period of time. So between sort of 12 and 15, I was playing other sports as well. At kind of 15, it was like, actually, I don't really want to do anything else. But again, my parents were very keen. And it's really weird, you know, it's, it's now, in, if you look at the sports and talent ID model, that the advice to young athletes is play different sports and, and again, develop skills within the sport and environment. So mum and dad were like, no, you need to play other stuff. You need to, you know, just, and do stuff that's a bit more sociable, you know, wheelchair racing, um, you know, if, if you're pushing along the road and your heart rate's 190, you can't really have a chat, you know. So um, I, I would potentially try, but, um, you know, so, so I did other things. I swam and I did archery and I did some horse riding and, and other stuff. Um, so 15 was like, okay, no, this is just what I want to do, nothing else. And then I joined an athletics club more specifically. And then just through, even through university, my training just sort of built and developed. By the time I uh, graduated, uh, I was training twice a day, six days a week, 50 weeks of the year. Um, and I think as well, I was probably lucky that because there wasn't a, a performance pathway, it, it gave me, um, for a lot of young athletes, it, it pushed them out of the system. For me, it gave me time to actually really think whether this was what I wanted to do. So by the time I was looking at universities, I only applied to universities that had good sports facilities mm. and good training and nice roads. So... Um, it, it was it was kind of an evolution as as much as as anything. So, um, where did the transition to politics? I mean, I think everyone would agree that the honour bestowed upon you a number of years ago was fully deserved, and you have been the pinnacle of your career for such a long time and uh, an icon, if I can say that. Um, but but where did the career, the the job that's not really a job that you've referred to? <laughs> Uh, in politics come from? Was that ever something that you aspired to do? Did it sort of materialise out of nowhere? What, what happened? So I actually did a politics degree at university. Did you? Um, Didn't know yeah. That. I wanted to do history, but they shut the course down just before I went. And um, my desire to go to Loughborough overrode my desire to study history. And they basically said, pick another course and you can do it. Well, I'll do politics. I mean, it's, it's similar. Um, didn't actually study too much British politics. Um, very grandly said to my head of my, my department before I graduated, I'm never going into politics, that's just for losers. Uh, and you go, oh great, that's a good one to say. But, um, you know, my, my dad told me when I was about 21, 22 that he thought I'd go into, I'd end up in the House of Lords one day. 
don't know why I thought that. You know, it's, I don't know why you kind of look at me at, at that age. But I completely forgot about that. So people say, well, you know, was that at the back of your mind all the way through? And it's like, no, no, I totally forgot until he reminded me. Um, but while I was competing, I became really interested in athletes' rights and, um, you know, athlete welfare. So I kind of, you know, I was an athlete's rep and um, that didn't always do me any favours. But I think I ended up being athlete's rep because when I became good as an athlete, it's it's really hard to deselect somebody who's winning gold medals. So you do have a little bit more leeway in terms of saying what other athletes... You know, if an athlete's on the borderline of getting selected, they're not going to speak up. Whatever environment you're in, you know, that's just unrealistic to expect that. So I, I was an athlete's rep. But also I did lots of other things. So I sat on the board of Sport Wales, um, English Lottery Panel, which at that point had 20 million of lottery funding a month to put into to buildings. You know, that was the early 90s. I sat on UK Sport for eight years, which um, we then, we oversaw the first influx of funding into lottery and performance programming. Um, and I sat on the National Disability Council, which oversaw the implementation of the Disability Discrimination Act. So, you know, those, and, and that kind of board work fitted in really well with competing and training. So that gave me lots of other skills. So by the point I retired, um, and I was working on the 2012 games as well, I actually had a CV, which I think people, kind of look at the, the athlete bit of me and say, oh, well, you know, that's what got you into the Lords. And that helped, but it was all the other stuff that I, I did as well. So for me, um, you know, um, as I'm, I'm a crossbencher, I'm, I'm an independent. You have an interview route to go through, which is all a bit weird. And then you, you come out of the other... You know, the first question in my interview was, what's the most interesting debate you've listened to in the House of Lords? Okay. <laughs> um, and then you realise when you're there that we, we do things that are very technical. You never say boring, but but you know we do line by line. So legislation, so you know some of it is really boring. Um, so yeah, by by the time I, I I got the chance, and 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 you're told every step along the way, are you sure this is what you want to do? You know, and and even at that final point, you know, just before they announce it, they say you do understand what this means. So you have plenty of opportunities to go. Oh no, mm. um, and then you know when you you go there you understand the, the responsibility of, of being in the place. So uh, if we can, let's just talk a, a little bit about disability, because I know that one of the things that really frustrates you, and I think it frustrates a lot of us, is uh, when people look at someone with some kind of disability, they think, to use your own words, oh, bless her, you know, what a sad and tragic life she must lead. Mm. Uh, what's, your, what's your reaction to that, and, and how have views changed, if they have changed, over the years? I think I feel a sort of sense of frustration that we haven't moved on more than we have. So, you know, I still get people going, oh, isn't it really sad? Right, I got to travel the world for 20 years, be an athlete, which is all I ever dreamt of, and I get to work in politics, and, and I love what I do now. So I don't think my life's... But people put um, so much... I don't know, kudos, I'm walking. And, and being in a chair... And, and I recognise because of the level of my impairment, you know, I'm not on a feeding tube, I'm not on a ventilator... You know, I, you know, my impairment is is relatively minimal to a lot of other people's. But for me, walking, you know, if if I could wave a magic wand now and walk, I don't think I would, because I wouldn't, because it doesn't give me anything that I don't have. So there's bits that have changed. So growing up, you know, I had parents pull their kids out of my way at supermarkets and say, you know, to their children, oh, don't cl don't go cl too close to her, you might catch it. Whatever that, you know, okay. So that's the environment I grew up in. You know, I got thrown out of cinemas for being a fire risk. And and I think it, it did improve. 
um, for a long time. And then I think it's going backwards because, you know, I don't know. It's too easy to blame it on austerity because that's just way too simple. Um, but, you know, disabled people's access to trains and planes and jobs, employment gap for disabled people is twice the, the average of a non-disabled person. Um, you know, disability hate crimes on the rise in the last couple of years hate crime against disabled children has doubled so you've got this weird dichotomy between Paralympic Games and London which was incredible and actually the rest of disability society so you know I'm really proud of what the 2012 games did it was stunning but you can't expect 10 days of a sporting event to change the world and do you know my biggest frustration is when I hear people say oh well it, it changed everything it's usually a non-disabled person who says that but if you had a man who said well, the 2012 Olympics stopped misogynistic behaviour. You go, really? I don't think so. So it, it, it's so what 2012 did do, it changed and and educated the British public about elite sport. And there's way more athletes that are know now are in the public eye and are household names. And that is brilliant. You know, you look at Johnny Peacock, not just what he achieved on the track, but you know, Strictly things like that, stunning. But um, you know, it's you, you just can't expect a sporting event to, to fix all the wrongs of society. You've you've achieved um, an extraordinary amount in sport. One of the things I do know about you is that um, you know, obviously, you've faced a number of challenges along the way. But prior to competition, it would be fair to say that you struggled with nerves. Would that <laughs> would that be fair? Um, threw my guts up would be um, even more fair. Yeah, I mean. So why did you put yourself through it then? If, if oh. that was what was going on. It's about two hours before I raced. And it didn't matter if it was the Red Car Half Marathon, you know, where it's just me and my mates competing or Paralympic final. I was awful. I don't know. Um, because the the end goal was worth it. Mm. Um, you know, it, being in a race, and, and more than, you know, winning's lovely, but I lost more races in my career than I won, you know, from the beginning to the end. So... Um, it was, there is nothing better than when, I don't know, say you're in a marathon and you're at the front of a pack of women and, you know, you're you're dropping women out the back because they can't stay and you're kicking off the front and that feeling of you're just doing something really good is worth the 20 minutes of throwing up. And actually all, I mean, I, I you know, team psychologists used to get very stressed out and my coaches did and they kind of learned to accept it. Um, and actually all you become better at doing is just eating the right sort of food that mm. when you throw it up doesn't hurt. I'm sorry, that's really graphic. but I, th- I think that's it, quite sensible, actually. It, if, you, if you know you're going to do it, you may as well make it as comfortable as possible. Yeah, and, and you know, I remember the dietitians being really stressed out. But, you know, it, it, okay, at Paralympic Games, it might have been day in, day out. But, you know, you just make sure you eat after a race, you hydrate, you just, you do all the things that you need to do straight after. To, to make it okay. Mm. Um, no, it's worth it. I mean, luckily I don't get um, like that over speaking in, in debates. But um, I, I was at a track meet recently and just watching, obviously. And what was really funny is the, the athletes were lined up and they blow a whistle, which signal, signals from the start to the finish that they're ready to go. And my stomach went and my heart increased. And it's like, it's like I'm, never, I'm 12 years retired, <laughs> you know. And it's really weird. Just that whistle just brings it all back. Mm. It's quite quite cool, actually. But One thing I'd like to pick up on is a comment you made just a moment ago where you said you lost many more races than you won. Mm. 
Um, now, I don't think people would necessarily think about that because all they ever see is the successful version of, of Tanny Gray Thompson. Um, how do you pick yourself up after defeat, you know, failure, challenge? Uh, it, it depends sort of slightly what level of race it is. You know, um, my, my biggest defeat uh, would have been in actually 2004 Paralympic final, 800 metres, made a split-second decision, which was the wrong one, and I put myself behind the slowest woman in the race, which wasn't smart. And, you know, you, you can make a split-second decision in a race, and it can go well. It could, you know, in 800 metres, you haven't got timed. You, can't, you can only make one mistake, and you're done. Sometimes you can get back from it, sometimes you can't. For me, it was about, you know... It, the medal table is really important. So gold medals, they're the only ones that count. And I think we need to be realistic. Silvers and bronzes don't count. They're lovely if you win them, but they only count when there's a tie for gold or, you know, there's a tie for gold and silver and that doesn't happen. So, you know, the team is just gold medal orientated and, and that denotes your next four years funding and your publicity and everything that comes with that. So that, that is a marker and it's a personal marker, but there's all nuances beneath that. So, you know, I've won races where I've probably not been the best on the day, but it's been a lucky race. Or someone who might have been really close to challenging me made a split-second decision. So for us, it was always important that you go back and you look at the quality of the race and, and you break it down, you know, technically. And, um, you know, you, you look at lots of different parts of it. And that, that really helps, actually, because I, I remember breaking a 400-meter world record and Ian had missed the first 10 pushes. And he hadn't seen the time either because um, he wasn't in a position he could see the clock. I remember him coming off the track and he said, your first 10 pushes were slow. I was like, okay, did you see the time? And he went, it doesn't matter about the time. I went, did you see the time? And, he, and he, he looked and he went, oh, okay. And he said, well, your first 10 pushes were still slow. So it's, it's that, because that helps you build it back up together and helps you, you refocus for the next bit. And the other thing we, we did a lot, you know, keep a, you know, an immaculate training diary, which you, you know, you have your morning resting heart rate, your hydration rate when you get up, how much sleep you've had, what you've had to eat. And you look at all those things. And actually, when you look back at that, if you look back at a three-month period of training, you can pick bits where you go, oh, actually, was that as good as I could be? And the easy thing about sport is that that is just what we did. I'd love to say that I do that in work, but, you know, you don't. And, you know, do I... I try to look at, think of my sleep and what I eat, and, and I don't do it as well as I used to. But actually, it's as important you do that in business... Because actually, the only way you can be firing on full cylinders is if you've ate right, slept right, done all the prep work for speech, you know, know exactly, you know. And, and so for me, some of that has been slightly harder to transfer into the life that I have now. So behind every good woman is a good man. You've already mentioned Ian, your husband. Um, how do you deal with travelling to all these different countries, competing at a very high level, your work in the House of Lords... <laughs> being pulled from pillar to post, which I know has been your life for 20 plus years. Um, how, do you, how do you keep a marriage um, as solid as yours is? Because I have perfect work-life balance. <laughs> My life is chaos. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I couldn't even keep a straight face for all that. Um, because Ian was an athlete, so he understood what I wanted to do as an athlete. So actually that was really important for us that, you know, when I got the chance to go away for, you know, training or, you know, you know, he wasn't there going, oh, don't leave me. Um, so that, that was, he, he got the sport bit. Um, he's changed his career twice for me, which, um, you know, I think's 
amazing. He doesn't get enough recognition for that. So um, when I was competing for my, my what was going to be my last Paralympics, you know, he he made sure that um, he, you know, he was still competing a bit by that point, but he kind of stepped back from that to to, to coach me full time, um, which was really amazing. When I went into the House of Lords, he. Our life wasn't going to be sustainable with him working full time. Uh, he was he's an industrial chemist, um, and um, we had a daughter by that point, so he he left work um, and was home with her. And now he's got a more f formal coaching role um, in triathlon, but that kind of evolved over time. So he's always been hugely supportive um, and pragmatic, and challenged me. You know, um, you know, if he didn't think I raced well enough, if I wasn't doing enough. Um, he, he'd tell me, but this huge support um, behind me, um, and I couldn't have done it, you know, without him. Actually, the, the other thing which, which I joke about, but I'm actually it's really serious. When he was competing at the highest level, he he competed at two Paralympics. Uh, actually, all I wanted to do in my career was beat him. You know, he was good. he was a really good athlete. You know, very highly ranked in the world. Um, yeah, I, I I and so I was never. You, you don't sort of sit, it's too easy to think about, you know, Sherry in the States or Francesca in Italy or, you know, all these other athletes. It's too easy to go focus on one. Um, be, and we used to also spend a lot of time performance tracking other athletes, seeing who was improving, who was dropping down, what races they were doing, how they raced tactically. Um, you know, we, we kept a lot of sort of detailed records of, of, of that kind of thing as well. Because you've got, to, you've got to be looking at who's the next person coming through. You can't just turn up at start line and not be aware of, of who you're competing against and how they race. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, the, the best thing to focus on was beating him. And I never did. So, um, and, and I think it's hard for him. You know, he got asked an awful lot, well, did you win any medals at the Paralympics? And he was like, no. And I'm like, oh. And, and all he used to say was, but she's never beaten me. And that, that was actually, I, I thought that was fine. That was really positive because, you know, I, I just was constantly chasing him. Mm. What do you aspire to do next? Because I can't believe for one second that you've reached a point in your life where you're, you're satisfied with your lot now and this is it forever. I mean, do you, is there anything you aspire to do? Um, yeah, lots. So um, I'm, I'm working a lot on, on train travel at the moment. Um, I would like disabled people to have the same miserable experience of commuting as everybody else. So, okay, that sounds a bit funny. But at the moment... You know, for lots of reasons, disabled people can't just jump on a train and get off the other end. Things that non-disabled people absolutely take for granted. And um, I was trying to get on a train a few weeks ago with Karis, and we, we arrived at the station, um, and it's a really regular service to where we're going, so we just rocked up. And she went, oh, yeah, the train's just come on quick, we'll make it. I went, oh, no. You know, and this is a child who's grown up around a lot of disability rights, and, you know, she's really aware of the challenges. Like, no, no, I need to go and find someone to get a ramp. And then they have to be willing to put me on, and then there has to be a space because there's only one space for a wheelchair user. And and she's like, oh. and so actually, what I want is disabled people just to be able to jump on a train. Making that happen is quite complicated. Hmm. So that's why I, I summarise it as same miserable experiences everywhere. You know, you can't if if trains are delayed. You know, there's lots of stuff you can't change. But at the minute, disabled people don't even have close to equal treatment as non-disabled hmm. people. One of the uh I mean, we could go on talking for hours, at least I could, because um, I'm finding it's all incredibly fascinating and, and very inspirational. Um, one of the questions we ask all our guests, uh, I'm going to ask it you as well, if that's okay. Um, Tanny Gray Thompson is now having a conversation with a 15-year-old version of Tanny Gray Thompson. So you're speaking to a younger version of yourself. Knowing oh. what you know now, 
and I'm sure you've had this conversation with Karis in one form or another, <laughs> but um, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to yourself as a 15-year-old? First of all, I think as a mum, you have to accept that your daughters never listen to a word you say. So that's... Um, oh, there's a few things. I mean, learn to keep your mouth shut, actually. So, you know, there's stuff, and I still do it, where I get very passionate about things, and I, I, and I am much better at it now, but, but it is like, just think a little bit more before you speak. I think the only... The, the trouble with that is that... Um, uh, I, I do try to be really conscious of of other people in the room, and 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 a lot of the time, um, I've toned down considerably what what I think and what I want to say, but then that is still really sometimes quite shocking for other people. So I t tone it down even more. Um, so yeah, just be be mindful of other people. Um, never let your roommate dye your hair. <laughs> I've done that, yeah. There are so many bad haircuts I've had in my career. And they're, they're the pictures, you know, that are, you know, the pictures of me winning medals. And you go, really? Did I really think that was okay? Um, yeah, I have to say, you don't look good in a wreath. Uh, I've seen a couple <laughs> no, of those images. But so, looking it, very nice today, though, I have thank to say. You yeah, you've, you've pulled yourself back yeah. well. Um, yeah, I, I think it's... Um, you know, it's hard work. I, that there's nothing really that I regret doing it. You know, even when I've been sort of quite sort of stroppy and quite challenging with people, it was, I did it at that point for the right reason. So it's really hard to regret things that I might not do differently. Mm. Um, there's some things where you think, well, you know, I've had, you know, a bit of flack for that. And, you know, sometimes that makes you stronger or it helps you learn. So, um, yeah, what I'd say to my 15 year old self was, yeah, you stick with wheelchair racing because it'll be all right. And you were never going to make it as basketball player. So stop, you know, don't even think that's ever an option for you, that, that wheelchair racing is the thing to do. Good answer. Um, so there are going to be lots and lots and lots of people wanting to know more about you. So if we were trying to find out more about Tanny Gray-Thompson, DBE, where would we find... I mean, I follow you actively on Twitter. Always got something to say. And it's always <laughs> fascinating. Um, but, but apart from that, you know, you're a, you're a public speaker. Um, there's all your political stuff that you do. But beyond that, well, I mean, people want to know more. Where would they, where would they go looking? Um, I've, I've got a website, which is uh, tanny.co.uk. Actually, probably my Twitter feed probably says more about me than, than everything else. Um, you know, I find that fascinating. I sometimes get more responses to the food I eat on trains or don't eat or than how I vote in the House of Lords. Um, that's probably... Very, um, yeah, I'm really conscious. Uh, my mum's passed away now, but I never tweet anything that I couldn't read out in front of my mother. <laughs> that's... Do you know what? That is really good advice. Yeah, just... Social media is too immediate. You can get too angry. You know, just think about how you use it. Um, but... Uh, and, and actually... Um, you know what? Not a bad thing is that you know they work for you. Gov is a web, you know that kind of covers everything we do and um, most of what we do in Parliament. So there's lots of ways that that you can kind of engage. Actually, we need more people in to engage with politicians. So um, basically, you can just write to me, Tanny Gray Thompson, or you can even write just Tanny House of Lords London. It it will kind of get to me eventually. That's cool, isn't it? That is really cool. That is really cool. That is really yeah. cool. I, I have to tell listeners that I received a, a lovely text from you this morning saying, "Would you like tea or coffee?" Um, I thought I've really made it when a, when a baroness texts me a message saying, can I make you tea or coffee? So, um, Tani, thank you. I'm, undoubtedly, there are going to be many, many, many calls 
uh, for people to hear more from you. So hopefully at some point in the future you'll come back on the show and we'll, we'll do a bit more of this because it's been absolutely fascinating. Th- thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you. That was the Sandro Forte podcast. Thank you very much indeed to a fabulous guest, Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson. Lots more interviews, lots more people just like Tani coming over the weeks and months ahead. So follow us on social media, Sandro's podcast, same on all channels. Do also share your stories, your thoughts, your experiences, and don't forget to email me, hello at sandrospodcast.com. And of course, finally, please leave a review on the podcast on iTunes and tell us what you'd like more of in the future. Until next time. (music) 